chapters and verses are usually helpful when we study the Bible. But they were added by other folks who sometimes broke up passages that should not have been broken up. This is one of those times. Sometimes the editors who did this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago said, well, we think this is the best place to break it. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Romans should not have been broken this way. Because as you will see in just a moment, what we read last week continues in this week's reading. And this week's reading is no more fun than last week's reading. I just thought I should warn you about that in advance. If you were looking for a week where we wouldn't have to worry about wrath and fury, you've got to wait. But you see, we get over the wrath and fury and get to hope fairly quickly in the book of Romans that Paul is laying down the foundation for being able to move us to hope. And what he's doing here is making sure that the readers in Rome and us who are reading over their shoulders understand that whether you are Gentile or Jew, you are in the same condition. You are not righteous. You might think you're righteous. You might try to convince yourself you're righteous, but you're not. As Paul will make very clear in this passage. <laughs> Remember that Paul talked about those who did not see fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them up to a debased mind. And then he lists off a bunch of sins and says, if you do not obey God's righteous decree, you're in deep trouble. And then like so much of what Paul does, it's he moves in today's lesson, which begins with the word, therefore. Therefore is a word that says, <laughs> You read all that, or you heard all that, and based on that, you need to know this. Paul takes his therefores very seriously. This one is a very serious therefore. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Yay, yay, yay. Oh, this is cheerful stuff, isn't it? He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now the last verse we read will be the first verse of our scripture two weeks from today. But I wanted you to get the whole of the context of what Paul is doing. This is Paul's continuing argument, argument that humans try to claim goodness. But in contrast to God's righteousness, we have no goodness to claim. The standard is a very clear standard. Here's God's righteousness, and then somewhere over there, miles away, is our righteousness. And you can't get from there to here by yourself. You don't have enough goodness, you don't have enough righteousness, I don't have enough goodness, I don't know, I don't have enough righteousness. I can't do enough good deeds to overcome evil. It's not possible. And this is what Paul is trying to express here. Now remember that in Paul's day, they would read the entire letter. They would not divide it up into 10 or 12 verses and read it once a week, the letter gets delivered by Phoebe, who probably read the letter. Church gathered. Phoebe is introduced. Here's Phoebe. Paul introduces her at the end of the letter. She's the delivery person. The mail service really wasn't great. So, Phoebe takes the letter and she reads the whole of the letter in one sitting. It's actually not that long. And because she reads the whole of the letter, they are moved fairly quickly from God's righteous judgment to hope. And hope, as Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 5, does not disappoint. 
because Jesus is our hope. And Jesus never disappoints. We can try to fool ourselves into thinking that our goodness is sufficient to earn God's approval. And then we pass judgment on those that we think don't measure up to our standard of goodness. No matter how strict is your standard of goodness, it does not conform to God's standard of goodness. If you put one drop of cyanide in a cup of water, you can say it's only one drop. What difference does it make? Well, once you drink the water, you'll find out what difference it makes. It makes a really bad difference in your life. It's just not a healthy thing to be drinking. And God says, if you've got one speck of unrighteousness, of sinfulness, of evil in your life, you're in deep trouble. That's the good news. Because you can't fix it. I can't fix it. None of us can fix it. And Paul is trying to lead us to the place where we will acknowledge with him, we are in deep trouble except for God's kindness. If it wasn't for God's mercy, just write it off. This is what he wants us to understand. This is what he wants the church of Rome to understand. If you are trying to be good so that God will love you, stop trying. It's not doing any good. God knows exactly what is going on in your life and that while you may be able to clean up your outward behavior, you may be having to grit your teeth so that you do not act out on what you're thinking. And what you are thinking is generated by sin and by evil. Hallelujah. The good news is God wants everyone to come to the place where they say, without God's mercy, I'm in deep trouble. Because then you're open for God to fix the problem. You can't fix it. I can't fix it. God alone can fix it. Which is where Jesus comes into the picture. This is why Paul is laying it on and laying it on about what God is going to do about sin. God is righteous, we are not. God is good, we are not. But God offers kindness and forbearance to those whose hearts are not hard. In other words, if you're willing to admit that you've got a problem that you can't solve, and you say, Lord, I can't solve it, guess what God does? God steps in and solves it. This is what happens to the thief on the cross. 
he is dying. He is dying in his sin. He knows he's dying. He knows he's in deep trouble. He knows he certainly can't fix it. He doesn't have enough minutes left to try to overcome the evil that he has done in his life and the evil that he thinks about. So what does he do? He calls on Jesus. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And God says, oh, Jesus says, I'll do just that. When we come to the realization that we cannot fix ourselves and that we must call on God, who is the righteous judge, who can fix it, the problem gets solved. And it gets solved outside of us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And when that problem is solved, then our lives are lined up with Him. And we experience forgiveness and joy and love and mercy and kindness. But if we choose to refuse to acknowledge the truth and to repent of that truth, then God's kindness is evident then we're putting in a vote for wrath and for fury. This is the core of Paul's argument. Now, Paul defines evildoers a little bit differently than we do. He defines the righteous a little bit differently than we do. Now, you can read this passage and think, Okay, if I'm doing good, then I'm going to be saved. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Evildoers are those who refuse to accept God's mercy by submitting to him. That is Paul's definition of an evildoer. You can be a good person who refuses to accept God's mercy, and you are still an evildoer. Period. End of story. Those who do good, the righteous, the good evildoers, are those who acknowledge the truth that apart from God's mercy, they have no righteousness. So they want to act in God's mercy and kindness and love and do their best to honor him by seeking to do good things. Not in order to be saved, but in recognition that they are. It's a fine line of distinction, you might say. Yes. If you refuse to accept God's offer of mercy, God will honor your rejection of his honor, of his offer of mercy. If you choose to accept his offer of mercy, God will gladly pour out mercy, grace, and love. God's kindness enables all to come to repentance if we turn to him. But God does not force his kindness on anyone. Now years ago, when I was in high school, my last year of high school, I was a resident assistant. So I had hall full of boarding school, freshmen and sophomores. 
Freshmen and sophomores by nature when they're in boarding school are pains in the chuckus. That's just what they are. We had certain rules that needed to be followed. And if you followed the rules, all was well and good. If you didn't follow the rules, very little was well and good. Now, at 7.30, everyone was to be in their room. At 8 o'clock, I had to go make the rounds and make sure that everybody at least was faking studying. They had to have a book open, pretending to be doing something. Now, I regularly received updates from the dean of who I had to be most strict with, the people that didn't study. And I'd hear that Phil over there and that George over there and Bill over there needed some special attention. And so I would actually have to go into the room, not just open the door and look in, and look over their shoulder and report back to the dean on what they were doing. Great fun. So for the first month, school, I was the strictest, most horrible person. We had six resident assistants, and I was number one in the hatred field. For the first month, guys would open their door and say, Kevin, I, I've got to go to John. Tough. You knew the rules. You go to the John before 7.30 or after 9. Hold it. Ooh, there were guys that did not appreciate me. <laughs> because they thought that if they goofed off enough, then they could go to the room and after a couple minutes of supposedly studying, they could go down to the john, goof off for a while more before they got back to the room to study. So I showed no mercy. All I did was show them wrath and fury. But after the first month, when the grade reports all came in, the first month's worth of grade reports, if you got reasonable grades, I'd let you go over and study with Jim. You could go over to John's room and study. You had to be quiet. You had to actually study. I was the only RA that did that. And my guy's grades kept going up. Why? Because I set down the standard of wrath and mercy and fury, and they understood that wrath and fury are not the fun that mercy is more fun. This is what Paul is doing here. He says, if you line up to the standard, life is fine. If you don't line up to the standard, you're in deep trouble. And guess what? Whether you are Jew or Gentile, you don't line up to the standard. So acknowledge it. Call on God experience his kindness and his mercy. And Paul says, God doesn't just put out kindness there for you to take advantage of. 
He puts out his offer of kindness so that you can see here's wrath and here's kindness. Which one do I want? And those who are engaged in living for themselves apart from God will say, see, God is so kind and merciful and loving and gentle. He'll never punish me. Because I'm pretty good. And Paul says, no, it's not why he's showing you kindness. This is the contrast. Here's wrath. Here's kindness. Which would you rather have? But over and over in today's world, we find people that say, here's God's kindness. And God's kindness absolutely teaches that if I'm a pretty good person, I'm going to be in heaven. And those who are not as good as me, especially the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Pol Pots, the evil, evil doers, they're not going to be there. Paul says that's faulty judgment. Because guess what? Those people are just worse sinners than you are, but you're a sinner. And you're in deep, deep trouble. So turn to God. Accept his kindness. Repent of your former way of thinking. And allow God to flood you with mercy. Because that's what you really need. And God loves to show mercy. God does not love to show wrath and fury. But wrath and fury are going to be the natural outcomes of sin, which is why God will ultimately judge the whole earth because it's already in need of judgment. God would much rather show mercy to every single human being who's ever lived than show judgment, wrath, and fury because he already showed that in his son. The righteous judgment for sin is what Jesus bore so that we can experience God's mercy and grace. And it doesn't matter how evil you are or how evil you've been or how evil your thoughts are. Once you turn to God, God says, now it's my problem, I can deal with it. Here's mercy, here's grace, here's love. Here's my sin, my son who bore your sins and accepted your judgment so that you can revel in his mercy and kindness and love in all eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you that when we were unable to help ourselves, but called out to you. You fixed the problem. For you had already sent your son to the world to bear our sin, that we could have life and forgiveness in him. We thank you for your mercy and for your love and for your forbearance, <coughs> for your kindness, your gentleness toward us, 
may we live lives that honor you, that demonstrate to the world what it means to be a follower of the one who came to give life abundant and free.